So Luke 17, 20 through 37, it's funny because the passage is very clear and you could spend, I could spend the whole month of January in it. It's wonderful. Uh, and, and the stuff you can do with it is amazing and I'm not going to do any of that. Uh, if you're interested in wading into the days of Noah and as it was in the days of Lot on another message, there's not enough time for this. I have four pages here. That's way too much. Uh, if you're interested in that, I would be happy to spend more time in it. Just two or three of you say to me, I'd like to hear more about I, uh, the, the, the sons of the, as it was in the days of Noah and uh, as it was in the days of Lot. But I'm just going to use it as <clears throat> I believe Jesus used it. Uh, and uh, I don't believe he meant for us to go into all that detail. At least I don't believe he meant for me to go into all that detail right now. And also, I, I do have five pages of notes on eagles and bodies at the end so if you want to wade into that i'll give you two options and i'm i don't i'm actually going to give you another man's conclusion because i really liked it and i don't see any sense in just stealing the ideas of stephen cole he did a wonderful job wrapping up this passage and i'm just going to steal it from him well i'm not going to steal it i'm giving him credit uh, so we're going to be talking about the coming kingdom the thought struck me it, have you ever been in a class where the teacher was a little bit scary or you really had a lot of respect for them and you were afraid to ask them a question, this is one of those days where you're afraid to ask your teacher a question. Now, when I, when I was in high school, there was almost nothing I was unprepared to ask a teacher. So they'd go, Bob, ask about this or Bob, ask about that. But when I got to seminary, we were afraid to ask anything. And we had this one teacher in particular who was the vice president of the seminary, and his name was Allison, but it wasn't Gray Allison, it was the other one. Maybe, maybe Phil, Dr. Phil, yeah, I think that's right, uh, Allison. And uh, we, there was about 60 of us in class, we're all wearing suit and tie, you know, it's old, old school seminary. Uh, and uh, David Shepard stood up and said, Dr. Allison, uh, we we're getting near exam time, would you mind telling us what part of your lecture is important <laughs> and which part is just fluff? And we're all going, it was just collective, like, oh, my God. Well, he actually got thrown out of school for that and had to ask permission from all his professors to come back. He actually became a, a, great, a great preacher, not just an average preacher, a great preacher. And he ended up being the president of the New England, no, the Northeast Extension of the same seminary. So he, he got past that disaster. But this is one of those cases where the disciples would have loved to ask Jesus these questions, you know, but they were afraid to ask it. Uh, now, in the disciples' day, the scriptures that related to the to the second coming of Christ. I know I'm going to confuse you. I'm sorry. They didn't believe it was the second coming. To the Messiah. Every scripture that they read concerning the Messiah had to do with, in their mind, conquering Rome and taking over the world, which is exactly what we're looking for. We want Jesus to come in, conquer the world, and take over the world. That's the Messiah we're looking for. The scriptures that they had, there were plenty of them, that taught about the suffering servant who would die and his death would be a, a, a payment for our sins. It, it was, it's in the Old Testament, but they just didn't read those scriptures. So they were looking for a Messiah that was going to conquer Rome. Now Jesus is on his last trip to Jerusalem, and the disciples are wondering, when is he going to conquer Rome? You know, when, when is this going to happen? But they were afraid to ask the question. 
And if you'll remember, the last thing they asked him before he ascended, after the resurrection, they still didn't have a clue what was going on. After the resurrection, they did ask him just before he ascended, ascended I'm sorry, will you at this time restore the kingdom? You know, that's, that was on their hearts the whole time, but they just didn't know what was going on. So they're on their way to Jerusalem and a Pharisee who doesn't mind being a David shepherd ask, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, which was on everybody's mind, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Now the problem with this passage, the difficulty of this passage, of course it's, it was originally probably written in Greek by Luke because he was a Greek. And it was coming from the Aramaic, which he was probably talking to the disciples in. I don't know that. And so there are these issues about translation. All right. Now, observation. Now, we passed the turning point in Luke to where Jesus has been rejected by the Jews, the Jewish leadership. They're already trying to kill him. They're looking for an opportunity to kill him. And the turning point in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels, you'll recall, Matthew 13. I have it written down here. It must not be on this page. Matthew 13, Mark 3, and Luke 11. It's the turning point. So we're past the point where Jesus is going to offer them the kingdom. The kingdom has been delayed at this point. When will the kingdom come still is a reasonable question, but the fact that the leadership of Israel has set their minds to reject Jesus as their Messiah, this seals the fate of, well, fate is not the right word, the future of Jesus to the cross and Israel to 2,000 years of the diaspora where they're kicked out. When will the kingdom come? Understand we're past that point when Israel could receive the Messiah. They're past it. Individual Jews could be saved and were. Individual Jews can still be saved and are. But as a nation, Israel has been set aside. Now that sounds terrible, but it's a good thing for us. Because had they received the Messiah, you know, what would have happened? The millennial, what a millennial, millennium, can't say that word, would have started. And where would we be? Well, we wouldn't be. Okay. We, we're going to enjoy heaven because Israel rejected her Messiah. That's yeah, a wonderful thing. So we know on the timeline of God, the cross is next. Then the resurrection. Then the destruction of Israel in AD 70. The diaspora for 2,000 years. Then 2,000 plus, we don't know how many years of church history. Then we know there's going to be a tribulation. Then the millennium. So we are, we are at least seven years from the millennium if it, uh, tribulation starts today. We know that. Now, had Israel received... Uh, had Israel received Jesus as their Messiah? I remember somebody in, in seminary asking that question. He said, well, we, we don't know. Of course, God knows what's going on. God knows what's going to happen before it happens. So it's not, it's a non, the question is a non-issue. Nonetheless, there is this what if. Well, what if they'd received their, their, their king as their Messiah? The millennium would, have, millennium would have started, you know. But then Paul said, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Did God, did God allow them to reject the Messiah in order that they would be destroyed? And the answer, of course, you read in the King James, God forbid, in the Greek, may, genoita. May is no, no way, not. Genoita is to become or to be. May it never be. I mean, Paul, a good Pharisee, probably would never say God forbid. And the word God is not there. It's not happening. Good translation. 
Not happening. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. So we have to really thank, thank Israel for their rejection of their Messiah in order that we would have a time for my parents to fall in love and, and hatch me out. See? So, I mean, it's really, it was really a blessing from our standpoint. Been tough on the Jews. If you know anything about the history of Israel, it's been tough on the Jews. Um, I have a note here to go back. I'm not sure I can. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Now, Jamison Fawcett Brown write, quoting them, To meet this erroneous view, not only of the Pharisees, but of the disciples themselves. Basically, he's saying they both had it wrong. Jesus made this statement. Our Lord addresses both, announcing the coming of the kingdom under different aspects. It cometh not with observation. Now, that's a verb, observation, but the noun of observation refers to trying to hide and wait and catch someone. Hence, Jamison Fawcett Brown writes, it cometh not with observation, with watching or lying in wait. There's a, there's a negative tendency in the way that that word is used in the Greek language. The point is, the Pharisees, when are we going to see the kingdom? And Jesus says, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking in the wrong place. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Again, a problematic word. The scholars are not in agreement with what Jesus is actually saying here. Because it's a plural. And when you use that word with a plural, it usually means among. So if you translate it as among, if you go through, and I did, uh, the ten most popular translations, five of them will have among, five will have What's the other way to do it? Within. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of like within. The King James uses within. I kind of like that. But the idea of among also fits the context very well. And I'm not convinced, as I study this passage, and this is a tough passage. Good thing there's food afterwards, right? Uh, as I study this passage, I'm not convinced that Jesus does not use both meanings. We're going to talk about eagles at the end, whether they're vultures or eagles. I'm not sure Jesus doesn't use both meanings. I'm not convinced of exactly what Jesus was saying here. So if he means it's within you, well, let's talk about among you. Here's a bunch of Pharisees, unbelievers, standing around a group of believers, and they're demanding to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, it's right here. Right? I mean, that fits beautifully in the context of what's going on. You're looking at the king, and these believers of mine are the kingdom. You know. But in the context of the word within, which I kind of like better, is the kingdom... See, because from Matthew 13 on, he began to speak about the mystery form of the kingdom. And you, you have to go back and trace that for yourselves. I don't have time here. But the point is, the kingdom was no longer offered to Israel after Matthew 13. The kingdom was offered to individuals. And you become you can become part of the kingdom if you invite the king into your heart. But if And then it's within you. The kingdom is within you. And it's among you when a bunch of people get together, as Rod had prayed, when a bunch of people get together who have the kingdom in their heart, or more importantly, the king in their heart, when we all get together, the kingdom is amongst us. So in a sense, that verb can be translated both ways. Well, they're good arguments on both sides. I can argue both are true. But from this point of view in the disciples' days, 
From this point in the disciples' days until the second coming of Jesus, the only kingdom of God we will ever experience is within our own hearts. Singular interpretation of that verb. And among us as we gather together. However, if we do not receive him, speaking about these Pharisees, speaking about Christ's rejectors in our day and age today, if we do not receive him, if we do not open our hearts to his indwelling spirit, it isn't enough to believe. You know that, don't you? It isn't enough to believe. You have to receive. You have to be born again. The devils believe, James tells us, and they tremble. They're terrified of Christ. They, 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 they don't even need to believe. They know he is there. They believe. But they wouldn't receive him as their savior. And that's the important point. You know, it, it, it isn't enough to just say, Jesus, please save me. That's the start. It isn't enough to just repent of our sins and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've sinned, and I recognize that I failed, and I'm unworthy to be in your kingdom. That's where you begin. That's repentance. And then we pray, Lord, please come into my heart and save me. That's, that's the invitation. If many man open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. What is that? Roman, uh, no, Revelation chapter 3? Is that right? Something like that anyway. Revelation 3 something. Uh, I will come in with him, sup with him, and he with me. That's the invitation. But until he takes us up on us, we're still not saved. We need the Savior in our heart. We just have to, he has to come in and save us. It's a work that he does. We have to be saved. The king has to move in. And if the king hasn't moved in, then you're, you're living in a world where things matter to you more than God. Where people matter to you more than God. You're living in a world where you're worldly and not interested in the things of God. And if, if you find that, that in your heart, you don't really love the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to go back to that original experience and ask him to come into your life and save you because you're not saved. In order to be saved, the king has to come in. That's the point. The king has to be in your heart. Even though we say we believe, the only kingdom we will ever experience is the kingdom of Satan if Christ is not in our heart. We have to be part of his kingdom. Uh, A.T. Robertson, great, great Greek scholar of the last century, said what Jesus says to the Pharisees is that they, as others, us included, are to look for the kingdom of God within themselves, not in the outward displays and supernatural manifestations. This is the character of the kingdom during the church age. We're not looking for miracles and revivals where people are saying, well, Jesus has appeared over here, he's appeared over. We're not looking for that. We're looking within. We're not looking for outward displays and supernatural manifestations. It will not be a localized display of here or there. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, and he said unto the disciples, the days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. Now, isn't that the truth? Can you imagine how those boys felt 20 years after Jesus had ascended up into heaven and they're walking around trying to figure out what to do and how to interpret and how to, and, and what is scripture and, and how do we put all this together and how do we run a church and what do we do about this and, and what about that? And, you know, oh my goodness. And what about these Gentiles that are now coming into our church? Boy, I bet they wished like crazy that Jesus was in their midst. But then so do we. Don't you wish you could just sit down with him and ask him your favorite 10 questions? Of course, your mind would go blank as soon as you looked at me. Because, Duh, you know, that would be me. Uh, what was that question you had, Bob? I don't know. I asked my wife, you know. But we'd love to see him healing the sick, teaching the crowds, just walking around, just sitting down. and eat. We'd love to see him. The day will come, he said, 
when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Boy, that's one of the most truthful things he ever said, isn't it? Disciples had not yet grasped the truth that Jesus would be returning to heaven and that they were going to have to go on without him. They haven't got it yet. But we who have walked without him our whole lives have an inkling of how they felt, don't we? You know, never, never to return in their lifetime. What if he'd have told them then it'll be a hundred generations before you see me? Oh, how depressing that would be. And the first question you have is, uh, how long's a generation? <laughs> I need to do the math, you know. What, what if you knew? If he said 2075? Oh, that's depressing. The, the fact that Jesus could come at any time, we could hear that trumpet at any moment, that's exciting. You know, we see the signs of the times. He said, you'll know. And they shall say unto you, now he's still talking to his disciples now. Pharisees, he's ignoring them. And they shall say to you, see here or see there, and go not after them, nor follow them. For as lightning that lighteth out of one part under heaven, shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. Now notice, the first of all, and I like this, that Jesus didn't say, I'm not coming back. And the, thing he, the second thing he said is, you won't have to go hunting for me. When I come back, it's going to be just like lightning. Boom from that side, all the way over to that side. Well, actually, east is that way. Boom from that side, and all the way over to that side. East is to west. Don't rush after those who set times and places for the second advent. The second coming will be sudden, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Paul said that's new information. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be saved. So we shall all be changed. I'm sorry. The point is, up until Paul revealed it, the whole idea of the rapture was a mystery. Jesus wasn't revealing it here. He's just talking about the character of a second coming here. But it will be universally visible. The whole world will know it, just like lightning shines all across the sky. Most of the world missed Jesus' first coming. You know, the vast majority of the people in the world had no idea that Jesus had come, lived a life, done all those miracles, was crucified, died, and was resurrected. It was up to the church to tell them. And that point has not changed in 2,000 years. Most of the world doesn't know that Jesus came, and it's up to the church to tell them. Isn't that neat? He's locked us in that situation where it's up to us to tell them about the Jesus that we know about. Most of the world missed his first coming, but no one will miss the second coming. Now, this is the point of this passage. In fact, I could actually end it here. The, and I'm not going to, by the way. But the second coming will be, will be worldwide, one, universal, two, inescapable, three, and for the rest of this passage, final. All right. You know, we say we want it to happen, but when it happens, it's going to be so terrible. We're thinking, ooh. Maybe we shouldn't have wished for this. But first, he said to his disciples, who still haven't got it yet, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And the disciples are going, what? They don't get it. See, they're, they're, they're still back on the white horse Messiah that's going to conquer Rome. They're going to be there until the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes. And it reveals to them all that he's been teaching. But first, the second coming must be only after the cross. Now, Peter got it 50 days later. As he preached this sermon, and I put these verses out of sequence, so you'll notice that, that the last verse is really the first. 
Just as Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the first day he received the Holy Spirit, prior to the Holy Spirit coming into his life, a, a, a young woman said to him, aren't you one of his disciples? And he said, no, I'm not. After the Holy Spirit, now look at his words. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Who's he talking to? Rejecting Israel. These are the ones that said, let him be crucified. Whoa, that's, that's pretty bold. For me, it's pretty bold. And being delivered by the firm determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, there's your predestination, have ye taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That's personal responsibility. Oh, they're both there. They're both there. That's because they're both there in God's mind. Whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. That's a pretty bold sermon. Now, he actually started with these words, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's actually quoting an Old Testament passage. And the point is that salvation is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation is in the hope that Jesus Christ will save us, come into our hearts and save us, and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ will change our lives, will be born anew will be a new person in Christ. Without that, can't be saved. Well, that's a, that's a rabbit I ran, forgive me. Back in Luke, as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus going on with this teaching. What an amazing story. My daughter would love to hear this, but I'm not going to talk about what she wants to hear, so it's probably good that she can't hear it because she's not on yet. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. I, I'm going to read it wrong because Matthew says it a little bit the coming of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, Missler said, well, he didn't destroy them all. Nine people were saved. Well, yeah, but he's talking about those who were in the days of the flood, not talking about Noah and his family. But this is the point. It was business as usual. That's the way the second coming is going to be. People are going to get up and go to work. They're going to have marriages. They're going to have parties. They're going to go on sailing trips just the way it was before. People are going to go about living their daily lives. That's the characteristic of the second coming. It will come by surprise, you see. They ignored this crazy old man building this gigantic box in his driveway. They didn't even know it was a boat. I've seen the ark that they built in... Uh, in Kentucky, and it's fantastic. Some of you have actually been in there. I, I'm not convinced that the ark that Noah built didn't have square ends. I'm not sure it had a bow or a stern. And, and I say that because, well, it's hard to make a bow. And it's hard to make a pointy stern. Now, he may have done that. I'm, I, I don't want to put the guy down. He had 120 years to build his boat. I've only been working on mine for 40 years. It'll be done in another 20 or so. But uh, it, he's been building this thing in his driveway and they ignored it the whole time. And then you know what happened a year, a year or so before the flood. All of a sudden animals from all over the world started showing up two by two. Now if that wouldn't be a sign of something to someone, you know, you would think uh, it, would, it would mean something to someone. But it, it didn't, you know. And then they started to cloud up and it had never been cloudy before. If you understand the, it's called a prequentitive imperfect in the Hebrew uh, about the character of the weather in those days. 
The door was shut. Remember, it says in the Bible, I looked up in Revelation chapter 4, and a door was opened in heaven. Remember that? And I heard a voice as it were of a trumpet calling. And I heard Jesus say, come up here. The door was open, and Noah heard a voice that said, come into the ark. And God shut the door. That's the end for us and them. That's the end. Too late after that. If they wait, they, those that waited till it started to rain waited too long. And that's the point. It was too late. That's the point Jesus is making. He does the same thing with Lot. Now, my, my daughter wants to get off on the, uh, Genesis chapter 6. It's a fascinating discussion. I will offend half the congregation if I do that. We don't have time anyway. The ham is heating up. All right. Jesus said also, my second coming would be as it was in the days of Lot. Well, you know, you can get into that. I mean, when you think about Sodom and then you think about the United States of America, there's a whole sermon in that one verse. You don't even have to get all the way through the verse for that, you know, as it was in the days of Lot. But the point that Jesus is making here, I believe, I mean, there's a lot to be said about the verse, and I think a lot of it's true, but I'm not going to say it now. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom and rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. When the door was shut and the rain started with Noah, time was up. See, when Noah, when, what's the guy's name, Lot? When Lot walked out of Sodom, they were done. They were toast. This is the point. For the world, the end comes when the rapture happens. That's not exactly true because many, many people will be saved during the tribulation. We've been through that three times so far in this church and I'd love to go through it again sometime. But there'll be many people, tribulation saints, that will be saved during the tribulation period. But from the standpoint of the hope of the world, it's gone. I mean, just like it was, I mean, just like it was in Lot's day. They, they were toast. The same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed, in the day when which he shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. He that is in the field, let him not likewise return back. Remember Lot's wife. This fits very well in the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem as it is in Matthew. He tells them when you see the army circling around, get out of town. And the church did. Very few Christians were killed in AD 70 when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Very few Christians, at least Josephus said that, a, a Jewish slash Roman historian said, very few Christians were lost in the destruction of Jerusalem because they heard these words and they followed them. And then you think, well, what does that have to do with us. What does that have to do with the tribulation saints? Well, the answer is Daniel explains it, that it's going to happen again. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament about prophets, and this is another rabbit, I apologize. How's my time doing here? Oh, oh I got plenty of time. Oh, the hand hasn't even warmed up yet. Good, good. Uh, where was I here? So if you go back in the Old Testament and you wanted to authenticate a prophet, is it, did I say that word right? Authenticate? Did I say that right? Yeah. Huh? No? 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 Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> if you wanted to prove that a prophet was a prophet, how's that? That's safer. That's the best you can do as a hillbilly, right? If you want to prove that a prophet is a prophet, how do you prove it? Oh, they give you directions. 
Go on. And Okay, what happens, uh, Henry, what happens if I make a prophecy that 300 years from now, uh, Donald Trump will come back as president? Uh, uh, that would be probably uh, Donald Trump 3. <laughs> that wasn't the point. I didn't get mean to get political. But what I'm trying to say is, I, I'm, as an Old Testament prophet, I am not allowed to prophesy only things that are outside of my lifespan. I have to prophesy something similar in my lifespan. And if that thing doesn't come to pass in my lifespan, right, then I'm considered a fraud. All depends on if you're working with the Holy Spirit. Well, that, that's, we're pre-Holy Spirit. That, well, the Holy Spirit, the prophets in the Old Testament were filled with the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. But the point, the point being, the point being there has to be an early and a later prophecy. See, both have to come true. If the guy's a prophet. So the fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem and these verses that apply to it are the early prophecy with the prophecy of the uh, abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. I think I'm in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, that was going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Both prophecies are true. And when the church saw Rome gathering, they got out of town. And when the, the saints, because they're not called the church in the tribulation period, when the tribulation saints, the believers in the tribulation, see this going on, they're going to get out of town. And Jesus says it's going to be quick. That's the point. Don't go back and get your stuff. Bob, don't go bail out your boat one last time. Just leave. Right? That's the point. Now we know from prophecy that the believers in the tribulation period will in fact go to, uh, go to Petra where God will protect them during the entire tribulation period. But that's a whole different point. The point is, don't look back. You know, I, I remember, I, I, I was all excited about the second coming of Jesus and I was out telling everybody I could talk about and I was talking to my sister and I thought, oh, she's a believer and I was starting to tell her about, you know, pre-tribulation theology and the rapture of the church and Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth and I was sharing all that with her and she burst out into tears just crying like a baby and I thought I thought this was good news and she, I said what's the matter she's my older sister and we never really got along that well so what's the matter with you now you know, she said I want to see my babies grow up well yeah, but that's the heart of the world. I want to see my boat finished. That's a man. I got to see how my team does in the playoffs. Don't rapture me out now. That's the world. Right? Well, the good news is the rapture didn't come. She got to see her babies grow up. And her babies had babies. And now she's a great grandmother. Praise God. You know. But the point is, it hit her. The suddenness of the rapture of the church hit her. And that's what I think Jesus wants it to do here. You look up, you see a door open in heaven, don't worry about the boat. All right? Now I'm worrying more about my dog. Who's going to feed Ollie? You know, well, the truth is, somebody's going to eat Ollie. Uh, I mean, that's really the bottom line. Uh, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone, even thus shall be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day we, he that is on the housetop and his stuff, I love that word, is in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return. Remember Lot's wife. Well, I'm totally lost. 
Just move forward, right? You get lost, do it like all guys do. Don't wait for directions. Just move on. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life, Matthew says, for my sake, shall preserve it. What matters? Eternity or now? That's the question. Where a treasure is, Jesus said, where our hearts be also. I'll tell you that in that night, there shall be two men in one bed. I don't think there's anything political or uh, moral about that statement. Uh, I don't think it was uncommon at all for two men to sleep in a bed in those days. Uh, actually, I used to sleep in the same bed with my best friend. Because uh, we only had one bed. And I didn't want to sleep on the floor. It's, it wasn't that uncommon until you talk about it today. And then we're going, oh my God. I'll tell you, that night there shall be, in that night, there shall be two men in one bed, and one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding together, and one shall be taken, and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Now, two are sleeping at night, two are grinding in the morning, and two are working in the fields, because the women ground the grain in the morning for the day's usage. The men worked in the fields in the daytime, and the men slept in their beds at night. All right? Now, the first thing you know about this is there's one worldwide instantaneous event. We call that the rapture. And yes, Jesus understood that the world was round. And yes, this proves it. Right? This proves that the world is round. Because it couldn't be dark. If you had a flat earth, it wouldn't be dark on one side and light on the other. It wouldn't be... Dark on one side, morning on the other, and dark on the other side. No, it would be daylight and it would be night. Just like that. If it was a pancake, but it's not a pancake, it's an orb. That's what Isaiah said, it's an orb. The Bible understands it. But the point here that Jesus is making is the characteristics of the second coming of Christ are sudden, universal, worldwide, and final. Be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh, Jesus said. Be ye therefore also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Page five, but it's short. I try to keep them to four pages. And, and, and he's... One will be taken in the other left, right? One will be taken in the other left. One will be taken in the other left. The disciples said, where are they being taken? Where, Lord? And he said unto them, just as clear as mud, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Oh, I got it now, Lord. Yeah, I got it now. Huh? Some say, you know, the word eagle is used 25 times. The word vulture is used three. But there was a Hebrew word for eagle and a Hebrew word for eagle. I'm assuming. I did not look it up, but I should have that there was an Aramaic word for eagle and an Aramaic word for vulture. And there was a Greek word. And I... I I wasn't going to do all that. But there's a Greek word for eagle, and there's a Greek word for a vulture, and there's a Greek word for a carcass, a dead human being, and there's a Greek word for a body. Now, this interpretation hinges on the definition of words, so that's why I'm being a little picky here. Some will say that taken is taken in judgment to stand before the judge of all the earth. So in this case, the eagle is a buzzard, and the body is a person that's either lost or dead. And that's scriptural. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend them that do iniquity. That's scriptural. That fits there. 
except the word is not not vulture and it's not carpers. So, so others will say the interpretation taken in the rapture to forever be with Christ in his kingdom. So in that case, the eagle is like an angel and the body is the body of Christ. And he shall send his angels, and that's scriptural. And he shall send his angels with great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one of the heaven to the other. So this is all at the, the end of the tribulation. Uh, the angels go out and they do a little fishing. And those people that survive the tribulation will be gathered together to stand judgment and then they'll go into the millennium alive. And the people that were lost and, and never got saved during the tribulation period will be gathered by the angels and they'll be cast into hell. They will not be cast into the lake of fire yet. That'll be a thousand years later. But they will be cast into hell prior to the millennial kingdom so that, I'm getting on a rabbit again, I'm sorry, so that when you go into the millennium, the only people in the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ promised by Isaiah, 3,000 years ago, the millennial reign of Christ will be only saved people entering in. They will give birth to unsaved people, but right now it'll be cool. And we're just going to be either above them, working with Christ, working as administrators, or part of the millennial kingdom, but will be in an eternal soul. They will still be mortal going into the millennial kingdom. And, and for what it's worth, as long as I'm as long as I'm on a sidetrack, if they only live 900 years, Isaiah says that'll be a shame. So there will be death. Death will be pretty much canceled. I mean, if you get hit by a train, yeah. You know, if you drown, yeah, yeah, you ain't going to make it. But it's going to be harder to drown because there's not going to be any more sea. But uh, nonetheless, people will accidentally be killed. That's a sidetrack. The point is, we don't know how to interpret it. I'm going to just read to you Stephen Cole, and then I'm going to pray. Stephen Cole, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, I believe now retired. Uh, Jesus' answer is, is also hard to understand. <laughs> yeah, that's the understatement of the year. Uh, there are a variety of interpretations, and it could mean, it could mean, it could mean that just as vultures gather on dead bodies where the spiritually dead are found, there inevitable, there, there inevitably will there be judgment. There inevitably will there be judgment. That's a terrible sentence. Stephen, you're a graduate of a seminary. Where the spiritually dead are found, I read this before, I promise. There, I would use the word invariably will be judgment. Anyway, you get the point. Now, when, you re, when I read you that sentence, you say, okay, he's thinking vultures and dead people, right? That's his interpretation of that passage. Or, he said, he's got five or six choices here. The sense could be that when judgment comes, it will be obvious, just as the location of a corpse is obvious by the presence of vultures. Oh, he's talking vultures and corpses again. Or it could mean that judgment not only will be obvious, but also universal and permanent. Well, that certainly goes right along with the passage, does it not? Once judgment comes, it will be final. Thus, Jesus is saying, and I like this, Stephen, don't worry about where the judgment will occur because once it comes, it'll be too late. The overall point, and this is his final conclusion, is that Jesus is making, the overall point that Jesus is making in verses 24 through 37 is that his coming will be sudden and therefore we must be prepared in advance to go on about life oblivious to God's present kingdom and with no concern for his future kingdom is to expose ourselves to great danger. That's the point. That's what I think Jesus' whole point was, and I think Stephen nailed it right on the head there. 
Each person must submit to Jesus as his king now and live in the light of his soon and certain coming. Only then will it not take you by surprise. We won't be taken by surprise. That's what Jesus said. Uh, might have been Paul said, let not that day take you by surprise. Somebody said it. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to talk to your people. Thank you for this, this privilege of sharing my life with these people and them sharing their lives with me. Father, again, we pray for those in our church that are sick. We pray for our young children that they'll come to these truths early in life and will never waver. We think of so many in the church that fall away as soon as they go to college, and we pray, Father, that will not happen to our young people. We pray, Father, for everyone within the range of my voice in the realm of our families and in this congregation that no one will end this day without having invited Jesus into their heart and experiencing what it means to be born again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.